BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. When I arrived, sales were running a very promotional approach to moving their jewelry, and it was a simple truth. No man ever got down on his knee, put his hand out and said, here, look, darling, I got you a deal. <laughs> Stop doing that. It doesn't mean that value isn't important, but the brand has to mean something more than just simply bashing out jewelry at low price points. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome to this episode of Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. On this episode, we have someone who's made his mark in one of the toughest sectors, retail, and he brings a wealth of experience and insights for us. The CMO of Macy's, Rich Lennox. He was born in the UK, a military kid. He studied animals in college, worked with some big cats at the London Zoo for a year, but wound up in advertising instead. He joined J. Walter Thompson right after Sir Martin Sorrell took over and went on to a terrific career in the agency business. That got him to the U.S. He was on the De Beers business and probably knows as much about diamonds as anyone can. From there, he moved on to his first CMO job at Zales and eventually to Macy's, where he has created ads that even Saturday Night Live has parodied the ultimate mark of success. He loves horses and rugby. Welcome, Rich. Thank you. There's a lot to talk about, but first, I want to do you in 60 seconds. Ready? Yep. Do you prefer beer or wine? Beer. Twitter or Instagram? Instagram. New Jersey or New York? New York. U.S. or U.K.? U.S. Oh, we won you over. Yeah, 20 years here. I think it's about time. Kentucky Derby or Belmont? Belmont. 
country or city? Country. Lions or horses? Horses. About to get harder. Secret talent? Staying calm under fire, I think. Favorite city? Florence. Smartest person you know? My dad was probably the smartest. Childhood hero? Chuck Yeager. Historical idol? Probably Nelson Mandela. Proudest career achievement? I think the turnaround at Zell's was probably my proudest career achievement to date. Proudest personal achievement? My daughter's. Quote to live by? One of my favorite quotes is, courage doesn't always roar. Sometimes it's the quiet voice at the end of the day saying, I will try again tomorrow. Who would play you in a movie? Probably Shrek. Shrek with an English accent. Let's go for that. <laughs> First job? Consultant. I hated it. I was terrible. Okay, here's the last one. What did you want to be when you were growing up? I wanted to either be in the military or I wanted to be a vet. I sort of described my career as a sort of bizarre series of accidents after that. I never really imagined myself working in corporate and certainly not behind a desk. And here you are. And here I am. <laughs> so with that, let's get going. Let's start with Macy's. It's really an amazing and historic brand in retailing. And I think it's probably the only retailer with those really big consumer franchises that are actually embedded in American culture. Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, Macy's Fourth of July fireworks, and really the big one, your flagship store at Herald Square here in New York. You didn't invent these, but you inherited them. When you took the job, you look at those things. How did you think about them? The first thing you think about as a marketer is, wow, they're amazing. The Macy's Day Parade is sort of unique in the fact that it's not something that Macy's writes a check for. It's something that Macy's built. We have a parade studio. We engineer the floats. We engineer the balloons. The vast majority of people who are in the parade are our colleagues and our friends. The first thing you do is you begin to understand the tradition. What is it that makes it so powerful and makes it so beloved by America? Three and a half million people on the streets of New York, 50 million people spending a very important day with their family watching it. Growing up in rural Mississippi in the 1950s and the 1960s, every Thanksgiving, turn on the TV, and that's what we did. And I think that's as true today as it is for a lot of America. It is part of their Thanksgiving Day tradition. And so my sort of role within both the parade and the firework and operating around Herald Square is to constantly ask a very talented group of colleagues, how do we move from good to extraordinarily good? How do you think about what brand permission you have to move it? I mean, there's got to be some limitations. Yeah. And I suspect you've hit some of the boundaries somewhere in something you've done. How do you think about that? Your challenge is how do you evolve but main true to those core brand truths that are sort of baked into the brand's DNA. And certainly when I was doing that with De Beers, it was something I was very, very conscious of. I was running a campaign that was ranked as one of the top in the last hundred years of Diamond is Forever. So you were seeped in the brand's DNA. And over time, and certainly at Macy's in the last three and a half years, you begin to get an intuitive grasp for what is brand right and what is pushing the boundaries a little bit. But every so often, you sort of have to go and flirt with those boundaries. And I think that's what makes it fun. So when you first started saying, okay, let's think about this or this, did it scare people? Yeah, I think so. Macy's was a company that had run a very successful retail model for a very long time, retail marketing model. My job was to come in and create an environment where the established people stopped the new people doing daft stuff and the new people stopped the established people from doing the same old stuff. And that's a very powerful combination if you can get it right. But absolutely central to being able to create that dynamic is building trust with the teams that you're listening to both sides and that you're not just going to blow everything up and that you are highly appreciative and respectful of the work that has come before you. My job is to carry the torch further. 
you and the entire Macy's team have been very aggressive and clearly spending your time looking through the windshield, not obsessed with the rearview mirror. How do these institutions like the parade and the fireworks and Herald Square play into that plan? We run a complex model that's really designed to sort of engage customers, to move them into acquisition, and then to get them to purchase either on the e-commerce platform or in the stores. But right at the center of it, we have these amazing properties that really are huge acts of brand generosity. The fact that Macy's puts on a parade for America for America is a hugely generous act. We don't charge anyone any money to come and see it. I've always said to people, if you can begin to win the emotional high ground around brands, a lot of the re-engineering we've been doing at Macy's is moving it from a transactional model to a relationship model. Part of a relationship model is making people like you as a brand and listening to them and having conversations with them as opposed to just bombarding them with messages. And the best examples of us engaging with the public in a really a non-commercial way is the parade and the 4th of July fireworks. You're in the middle of many trends at Macy's, and we touched on a few of them here, and I want to get into that. But first, I want to rewind to Young Rich. Let's talk a little bit about being a military kid. What branch of the service, by the way, was your father in? My father was in the Royal Air Force. He was an odd combination because at the time in the Royal Air Force, although he trained as an engineer, they decided that it would be a good idea to allow some engineers to fly planes so they could get into them to see what was wrong with them. They don't do this anymore because it's too expensive to train pilots. But because of that, he spent time actually flying fast jets, which was amazing. And then after a couple of tours of duty, transferred back to being an engineer. So I spent three years of my life in Sweden, three years of my life freezing to death up in Yorkshire, being moved around the country. It was an amazing way to grow up. I was very, very fortunate to have that childhood. Being a military kid, does that make you different? I think so. Military people are amazing. They are all about service it sort of imbues you with a sense of the importance of the team and an esprit de corps. And even though I wasn't in it, I was sort of immersed in that from a very, very young age. And the other thing is you become very flexible because you move literally every 18 months to three years. Up until I was nine, I was moving. And then when I was nine, I went away to boarding school, which makes you self-reliant. You came of age in the 70s. Can you paint the picture of England in the 70s, that era? It was a tough time. You had Thatcher, you had the coal strikes, you had the unions. England was tearing itself apart. But despite it all, the English have an amazing sense of humor and an amazing sense of resilience. Everything is always understated. It doesn't matter how bad it is. Everything is always (laughs) understated. And that has been a thing that is very much in my DNA. Anything from that stage of your life that you use today? Absolutely. I spent the majority of my youth playing rugby, which I loved. I always can tell when I work with people, whether they ultimately played in team sports or individual sports, it sort of colors how people play. Because you're in such a pressure cooker in these schools, you have to learn to live with people. You have to learn to be accommodating and to be collaborative. So off you go to university. Stories are right. You wanted to be a vet. I did. And where did that come from? I just love animals. I've always loved animals. I grew up with Labradors and I grew up with horses. In England, there was a famous series called James Herriot, which was about a Yorkshire vet and the the sort of trials and tribulations. It was a wonderful series. It was a really romanticized view of what being a vet was. But the result was, you know, I spent six weeks treating ringworm fleas and... Not romantic? I realized it was actually quite a lonely job. That wasn't the type of person I was. What in your university years shaped you the most 
and that stays with you today. What you've got to understand is British university was very, very different to American university. In British university, you essentially teach yourself. You turn up to lectures, you have a couple of tutorials a month. My professor wouldn't have recognized me if his life depended on it. Just do what you want to do and we'll give you a set of exams at the end of the year. And if you pass them, you get to stay. And if you don't pass them, you fail. And it's really sort of entirely up to you. But what undoubtedly shaped me, it was my friends, the friendships that I made. So you spent time at the London Zoo with the big cats, yeah. which had to be some that was great really stories. Cool. That's probably a podcast in itself. Yeah. What did you do working with the cats? Well, part of my zoology degree in my final year was to do a dissertation. And I was specializing in behavioral studies. And really quite cheekily, I wrote to the head of the Zoological Society at London Zoo and basically said, look, I'm really interested in this phenomenon called stereotypical behavior, which is how animals exhibit and relieve stress in a captive environment. How do they? Really, it manifests a lot through the pace patterns. So when you're seeing an animal walk a very repetitive pattern around its pen, it's a symptom that it is highly stressed. And what it's trying to do, if you think about it, is get normality. With polar bears, you'll see them weaving their head. So I got to spend three days a week for about nine and a half months working with a young lioness called Annika, who was an Asiatic lion. They were trying to integrate into a pride of African lions. Lions are amazing, and they are so beautiful when you see them up close. Now I want to jump a little bit. It's time for us to get your how I got started in advertising story. <laughs> okay. You joined JWT just after Sir Martin took over and began to build WPP and really was a big shift in the advertising industry as a result of that. Did you feel like you were at the beginning of something big, a shift? I joined JWT as an account planner, which is basically a business strategist right. or a brand strategist. At the time, JWT had a rule that in order to be in the, the account planning teams, the brand strategy teams, you had to have 10 years industry experience, either as a marketer, an advertiser, or a media person. And then the guy who stepped in to run the department after Stephen King had left. Stephen King is like a legend in the advertising industry. He basically invented the discipline of account planning in the UK. A guy called David Baker basically decided, I'm going to see if I can train baby planners. So I was an experiment. Myself and a really good friend were the first junior baby planners that they ever brought in to train from scratch. Did you prove it worked or failed? Well, I think my friend proved it worked. I think, <laughs> let's put it this way, I didn't mess it up so much that no one else ever got the opportunity. But my colleague that was brought in, a, a lady called Mary Stowe, went on to be a very, very talented planner. And when I came into JWC, they sort of looked at me and said, look, we could put you in account planning or we could put you in account management. So I did my first five years in account planning and then I transferred to account management. How did you get in advertising or how did you even think of it? It doesn't sound like you had any interest in it in high school or college. And why did you pick up a magazine and say, yeah, that's me advertising? Well, I came out of university and I thought I was going to go into the army and do a three-year short-term commission. As luck would have it, I kept damaging my shoulder, which meant I couldn't take up the short-term commission that I was being offered. As a stopgap, I joined a company in London that was a consultancy and didn't really like that very much. And my sister is a graphic designer was spending a lot of time in and around ad agencies and said to me, look, you're either going to go off and try and be an investment banker, which you will hate, or why don't you go and talk to some ad agencies? It was as simple as that. Oh, that's good. At the time, advertising was amazingly fun. Joining JWT in the late 80s, it was like arriving at the end of a really, really good party. You realize that there had been one hell of a massively fun party, but it was sort of waning down. And I think that's what Sorrel did. 
Sorrel, you know, came in and took these amazingly creative companies, but not really very well-run companies, and put a lot of professional discipline into them. How did you learn advertising? Who taught you? Some of the best marketing strategist brains were sitting in the JWT account planning discipline as I arrived. People like F. Jenkins and Bernadette Knox, unbelievably talented brand strategists. Every lunchtime, they used to sit in the open area and we'd eat sandwiches. And I would just sit there and listen to them talk about brand strategy. It was like a PhD about how do you create compellingly differentiated brands and how does strategy and creativity play together? What's the insight and how do you then find a compelling expression of that insight in order to bring those brands to ignite in customers' minds? Knowing you as a marketer, you still use that today. Yeah, they sort of ingrained it on me. I was incredibly lucky to train that way. A lot of people come in through marketing and they do junior brand management or they do junior account management. And it's, there's so much process work in doing that. I got injected straight into the strategy side of it, which looking back on was just incredibly fortunate place to start. So how did you wind up at De Beers and Diamonds? I did seven years at JWT London operating across London and Europe. And this was a time when JWT London, I think, was ranked as the top agency in the world. The Daily Mail used to do the top 10 favorite campaigns. In England, JWT had seven of the 10. It was ridiculous. But I always had this really huge desire to go to New York, to come and work in New York. So I went to speak to Chris Jones, who was the worldwide head of JWT at the time, immensely talented individual and said to him, I want to come to New York. And he said, okay, that's very interesting. He came back to me three weeks later and said, actually, we want you to go to Tokyo. So I spent two years of my life in Tokyo, which was an amazing... Working on what? Working on Warner Lambert. Warner Lambert was the largest affiliate outside the US for Japan. I really only wanted to do two years because I didn't want to sort of become a far Eastern Asian expert. I wanted to come and work in New York. And when I came back, Chris Jones said to me, I don't have a job for you at the moment. But De Beers have just started working with Bain Consultants and they need someone who has a sort of brand strategy within that pod. Would you want to do that? And I said, sure. But it really was a parking strategy. It was like until another big global JWT account came up. I was about 31, 32 at this stage and I spent nine months working with De Beers and I was walking down the corridor one day and their worldwide CMO and CEO stopped me in the corridor and said, the individual who runs the New York operation has just resigned. Would you be interested in the job? And I just went, sign me up. I often think if I hadn't walked down that corridor at that moment, what would have life been? Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. 
Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Welcome back to Math and Magic. Let's hear more from my conversation with Rich Lennox. Tell us about this iteration of a Diamond is Forever campaign. I mean, we talked earlier about the parade, the fireworks, you've got Herald Square. You can either be afraid to touch them or you use them. And it sounds like you touched a Diamond is Forever campaign. Talk about it and talk about how you managed to persuade people to let you do that and what the impact was. The Biz is a really amazing organization. And it's a very unusual organization because essentially it was a group of miners fused to a group of marketers. So they were digging it out of the ground and then they were persuading people that they needed it. And all of that was done in a JV venture with South African, Botswana, and Namibia. So a company that was really quite ahead of its time in terms of benefication and working to make sure that a natural resource was benefiting both the country and being commercially successful. When they asked me to come to America, the U.S. market had stalled. It was essentially growing at, I think, about 2% a year. At the time, 50% of the world's wide diamonds were being sold out of America. So that was pretty scary. I can remember being briefed by the worldwide CMO at De Beers, a guy called Stephen Lucia, who's immensely talented. His brief literally was, we don't think the US market is going to grow much more, but don't screw it up. Your job is not to blow it up. But when I got there, we started to go, look, you know, Diamond Forever is an amazing campaign, but what if we built big product stories that went underneath it? And what would those product stories be? We started to engineer products rather than campaigns. The best example of that was the past, present, future. We did a lot of in-depth research with consumers. We actually hypnotized men. I kid you not. We kept asking people in quant, 
do you agree it's a good idea to give your wife a diamond anniversary gift? Yes, I do. 80% of men agree with that, but only 10% of men were actually actioning on it. So there's obviously quite a big gap. So we got really fed up with this gap between what they were saying and what they were actually doing. And so what we did is we arranged to hypnotize a group of men. And literally one of the exercises we had them do, we had them say, you're looking out over a valley. Imagine that valley is a vision of your marriage. Draw a picture. So all the people who had given diamond jewelry, you had green pastures, snow-capped mountains, clouds, and literally... Some of the guys who hadn't, we had volcanoes, rivers with sharks in them. It was absolutely fascinating. But what that led us to do is say, look, you can't fix marriages, but what you can do is find a very good articulation of what men want to say. Because men really aren't that articulate. And what we found women wanted to hear was, I love where we've been, I love where we are, and I'm committed to our future. That translated into the thought, your past, your present, and your future, which then translated into a three-stone diamond ring, which, by the way, was fantastic, because rather than selling one diamond, you're selling three. three, and was even more fantastic because it was easy to manufacture. So we essentially went on a roadshow with the trade and basically said, look, we think we got a good idea. And they said, no, we've been trying to sell three-stone rings forever. They don't work. We said, well, what if we called it past, present, future and ran this advertising campaign behind it? And they went, ooh, that's interesting. So we did it, the trade aligned, and it became a billion-dollar success literally within three months of launch. It was unbelievable. But that, to me, was a good example of how we stopped being marketers and what we became is sort of like cultural engineers and product engineers to basically go, okay, there's a need here. We can build a solution, then we can market the hell out of it. So let's talk about another solution. I love market expansion ideas. Right-hand diamond rings. Yeah, That turned out to be, what, about a $3 billion business? Yeah, over time, yeah. Who came up with that idea? I mean, it sounds like a risky idea. That was a really interesting one because essentially mines are unpredictable things. One month they'll be producing lots of large rough diamonds that cut to one carat, and then they can suddenly start producing a whole load of little diamonds. De Beers basically were producing too many small diamonds, and we needed to find a way to create some market velocity underneath them. Someone had the really revolutionary breakthrough observation that women have two hands. The left hand could be about commitment, marriage, and the right hand could be an expression of individual taste and who I am. When we initially went to the business and said, we've got this idea, we're going to make the right hand about self-expression. You can buy it yourself. It's very design intensive, which is great because that will use lots of little stones. A lot of the De Beers people thought it was heresy. They were like, hang on a minute. A diamond is forever. It's all about love. Women buying rings for themselves. This sounds ridiculous now, but, you know, we're dealing in 15 years ago. And there was a lot of nervousness around the idea. So, of course, we did the sensible thing. We went and spoke to women, and women went, don't be ridiculous. I can absolutely reconcile in my mind that there are diamonds that are brought for love, and there are diamonds that brought as self-expression. That's a great idea. Let's do it. So, on the simple premise of talk to your customer, don't go in with preconceived ideas. That was a really good example. And then the creative team came up with this really, really good idea of women in the world, raise your right hand. It was a beautifully crafted campaign with great product, but really it was sort of pushing on an open door. That's a great case study for market extension. Let's go to a case study for transformation turnaround. 2009, you make a jump, but this time it's the client, your first CMO job, Zales. 
you had 14 consecutive quarters of positive, comparable, same-store sales growth until Zales actually was acquired in 2014. How did you do it? I mean, this is your first time in the lane. Now you're the client. You're making the calls. What did you do? Well, firstly, I was hired by a really, really talented CEO, Theo Killian, just an enormously talented, generous, smart leader. That makes all the difference in the world. And second, if you're going to get involved in turnarounds, you have to be good in a firefight. You have to be the type of person who actually runs towards fires rather than away from them. And you've got to have that sort of combination of arrogance and naivety, arrogance that you can succeed where others fail and naivety that you can succeed where others have failed. There's a very talented group of people who were brought in to help fix a very beaten up company. But at the end of the day, the sort of the core of the brand was still there. We started to do things really, the simple things. And I took a lot of the lessons from De Beers and that made the transition easier because I understood the category. When I arrived, sales were running a very promotional approach to moving their jewelry. And it was a simple truth. No man ever got down on his knee, put his hand out and said, here, look, darling, I got you a deal. (laughs) Stop doing that. It doesn't mean that value isn't important, but the brand has to mean something more than just simply bashing out jewelry at low price points. I was very lucky in the fact that Theo absolutely got on board with that very quickly. The chief merchandising officer, Gil Hollander, got on board with that very, very quickly. Zells was a case study of a small company. I mean, it was about $2 billion. It wasn't big. In real trouble, but a team of people coming together and going, we're going to get this done. And we're going to get this done because it's not just about share price, but it's about people's mortgages and it's about car payments. There is a responsibility here as a group of leaders to get this right for the people that work for us. There were 17,000 people that worked at Zales. And one of my proudest things is that the first year I was there, there was a fairly significant riff, and then there was never one after that. So we got it right. What Zales allowed me to do is not just be a marketer. It was about brand engineering. It was about business engineering. It was about team dynamics. You spread your wings a little more. Yeah. You jump from this category you're comfortable with, to being the CMO at Toys R Us for two years. Yeah. What insights did you get there that you still keep with you today as a marketer? Toys R Us was an amazing brand, and it had some really talented people working at it, but it was laboring under a debt burden that was just crippling, just absolutely huge. And I think it was a sort of victim of the acquisition models that were developed in the early 2000s, which made a lot of people a lot of money, but left the companies that were standing really, really struggling. I'd been in the jewelry industry, in the diamond industry for about 15 years with De Beers and with Zales. And what I needed to prove to myself was that I could take the core marketing skills as a CMO and transfer them to a category that was about plastic and IP ideas. So I went from talking to diamond suppliers to Disney or Hasbro or Mattel And I learned a lot of good lessons. Some of them were very useful. Some of them would don't do that again. (laughs) (laughs) Those are usually the best lessons we've learned. They really are. So we're back to Macy's. Yeah. It's 2016. Yeah. You're the new CMO. Yeah. You made some big changes early on. Can you describe them? Talk a little bit about the big successes and also talk about some of the things you tried that didn't work. When I joined Macy's, I was sort of the first external C-suite hire they'd brought in in a long time. Macy's had been enormously successful as a retailer. I mean, they were putting on astronomical growth rates right up until about 2014, 2015. 
And they've been doing that by running a very high-frequency promotional transactional model. That was really the absolute central core of their marketing model. And what we started to talk about was, this isn't the old model was wrong. It's just it doesn't work today. And it doesn't work today because the media landscape is changing, so we can't run the same model. The media vehicles that we need were beginning to falter underneath them if we were going to run that same model. Consumers' shopping habits are changing profoundly. So we need to invent a new model. We said, look, we've got to get out of the transactional business and we've got to get into the relationship business. And that really then said, okay, if we're going to design a a marketing model that's predicated on building strong customer relationships and looking at CLV rather than what was the last transaction that you did, then lots of things flowed out of that. We had to launch our own loyalty program. At the time, we were part of the Amex Assortium Around Plenty, and we had to exit that and launch our Star Rewards program. We had to start not just offering things at a lower price. We had to talk about our product and editorial authority, reinforce the fact that Macy's has got good stuff so that when we put it on discount, that pulls harder. And when we put it on discount, there's a model where our best customers can be constantly engaged by the brand. And then sort of on top of that, we had to blend in the parade and everything like that and all make it sort of work together. One of the things I love about retail is the marketing ecosystem is so incredibly complex. You have a high-frequency promotional model, which change weekly. You then have a loyalty model and a credit model layered into a product authority and a brand model with co-op running right through the middle of it and e-com demand tactics on the other side. So what that does is it creates almost like a Rubik's Cube of decisions that you have to flex between in order to get the optimum balance in your marketing models. And that Rubik's Cube will flex based on the cycle that you're in that year. The Rubik's Cube position that works at Black Friday looks nothing like the Rubik's Cube that you're running for full fashion or spring fashion. So it's a sort of endlessly fascinating ecosystem to try and get that perfect point of calibration in, which, of course, you never succeed in getting. The hallmarks of your career seem to be big ideas, transformation, not afraid to take a chance. Probably many of the things don't work, but as you say, you learn a lot from it. I know that's got to be scary to the people there. You've alluded to it a couple of times here. What kind of culture is necessary? What kind of culture do you have to build within the marketing group? And what kind of culture does the company have to have to allow those things to happen? Well, I think the role of CMOs today is to do two things. You call it maths and magic. I call it the art of persuasion and the art of precision targeting. But what CMOs also have to do is they have to be able to talk to their peers in the C-suite particularly the CFO and the CFO, and translate what marketing is doing into business results. You have to be able to explain how you are driving marketing productivity and the investment decisions that you are making across complex media ecosystems and complex marketing tasks in order to make sure that every dollar we spend is returning as highly as it possibly can. And you have to be brave in those decisions because I don't know many marketers today, if any, who are getting budget increases which means that you've got to bring analytical teams and data science and all of the things that allow you to make data-driven decisions around your marketing decisions. And then at the end of the day, you've got to understand is you can have the best targeting in the world. You can have the best decisioning. You can have the best personalization. If you don't have good ideas to put through them, you are minimizing the impacts of those campaigns. I forget who said it, but it's absolutely true. The best way to make a smaller budget work harder is have bigger ideas. And I think part of that is because I came from a culture where ideas were absolutely king. And I saw the power of big ideas to transform businesses. 
I'd like to get some insights. What is different about being on the client side from being on the agency side? You've done both successfully. Agency side, you have a responsibility, but you don't have the same degree of accountability. I also think agency side, the sheer breadth of marketing disciplines that are now in play, the involvement of marketing and ad tech, CMOs and senior client leaders have to be such really, really good generalists now. Creativity and production of content is a very small component of what we actually do. It's a very important component, but it is a small component. How has that changed what you look for in an agency partner? That's a really good question. First and foremost, they have to be capable of creating big ideas that just have the ability to go, wow, I would have never thought of that. That's fantastic. And the relationship discipline to push you when you need to be pushed and listen when you're going, hell, I know what I'm about to do is a bit daft, but bear with me, there are methods in the madness. That, I think, requires really good account management skills. You have to be able to push on people, but at the same time support them. When you work with the good account leaders, they are exceptionally good at doing that. If you could give some advice to your 18-year-old self, thinking back, looking back, what would it be? Don't worry so much. Take risks. And I think one of the things I'm proudest in my career is I have taken sort of risks. I've done things that people said to me at the time were at best silly, at worst foolish. What advice would you give for somebody who would like to be a CMO of a major brand like you? CMOs have to do two things simultaneously. They have to be, for want of a better word, a really good cheerleader within an organization. And they have to be able to be very quick learners and editors. They need to be able to come into a room add value to a conversation that they have not necessarily been part of. You've got to be fast enough on your feet, really good understanding of brand management, really good understanding of consumer insight generation, and a really good understanding of how you work with creatives to edit good ideas, and then really good understanding of media and investment decisions. So you've got to chase breadth of experience, not just depth of experience, because the role is so broad now and has so many disciplines within it, you're never going to be the master of all of them, but you've got to have a pretty good working knowledge of most of them. And then you find people who are subject matter expertise and you figure out a way to work with them in a way that empowers them. We always end Math & Magic with Math & Magic shout-outs. You've seen a lot of marketing and business folks. Who is the best one on the analytics side, the math side of the marketing equation? People like Terry Prue were really at the forefront, really beginning to develop the marketing mix models that we all now take for granted. Give us the best now on the magic side, the creative. There are just some campaigns that I absolutely admire. The amazing old campaigns, you know, Nike, when it first came out, we just did it. There's that amazing book that Scott Bedbury wrote about the origin of the just do it idea. That campaign was why I wanted to get into advertising. Rich, you've got a great story. You tell it well. The accent helps. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Bob. It's been my pleasure. There are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Rich. One, don't just be a marketer. Be a cultural engineer. At De Beers, Rich saw an opportunity to help men do a better job articulating their feelings. So he created a product, the Three Diamond Ring, and a campaign, past, present, future, around it. Two, talk to your customer without preconceived notions. When Rich's team talked to women about their desire for self-expression, it led to a whole new product, 
the right-hand diamond ring, which became a cultural phenomenon, not to mention a business success. Three, ideas are still king. As Rich says, you need data to translate marketing into business results, but without big ideas behind them, the data is useless. Just look at what he's done at Macy's. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep.